paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Fasten your seatbelts and get ready for fun. The gumball rally has begun! The gumball rally. And all out. Anything goes. Absolutely illegal race. From Times Square to the Pacific Ocean. No catalytic converter and no 55 mile an hour speed limit. The next time out, I'm going to make sure you get a driver's license. 35 magic hours, flat out against the red line. It's not a risk, it's a challenge. The drivers come in all shapes, sizes, and sexes. Hey, slow that thing down! Oh, if you catch me, you can have me. From all walks of life, all over the world. The first rule of Italian driving. What's behind me is not important. But in the Gumball Rally, the cars are the stars. Camaro, Corvette, Cobra, Porsche, Ferrari, Rolls-Royce, Kawasaki. They go over, under, around, and through. Anything that stands between them and the finish line. It's a mad, 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 mad world on wheels. Magnificent. This is a race, man. Some things are more important than winning. So fasten your seatbelts. What's the matter with you? The Gumball Rally has begun. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me again is Mr. Chris Stashu. Hey, you make a good Italian. Also along for the ride is Father Malone. No more jokes! We are returning to the world of vehicular mayhem with a double bill request from Patreon donor Andrew Hendrickson, the Gumball Rally, and the Cannonball Run. Plus, we may talk about Cannonball too, just for fun. And to make things a little bit confusing as well. Let's start with the Gumball Rally, released in 1976. The film was written by Leon Capitanos and Charles Bale, who also directed. It stars Michael Saracen as Michael Bannon, a corporate exec who gets his kicks from an all-out coast-to-coast race, where he's partnered with his buddy, Professor Sam Graves, who's played by Nicholas Pryor. And he really is just kind of racing against his rival Smitty, and Smitty's ringer Franco, played by a very young Raul Julia. We are going to be spoiling things for all of the aforementioned 
mentioned films as we go along, probably a few other films as well. So if you don't want anything ruined ever in your entire life, just go ahead, turn off the podcast, watch every movie that has ever been released and come on back after you have, because we will still be here in about a hundred years. So Chris, when was the first time you saw this? Was this a first time watch for you? I was actually going to wait a hundred years and then answer your question. The only movie of these that I had seen is the one, the most recent one that I rewatched that wasn't part of the initial offering. So I had not seen, I guess, these original inspirations for that movie. I had never seen Cannonball Rally, Cannonball Run, Gumball Rally, or Cannonball. I had seen none of them. So this is a first time viewing across the board for all three. And Father Malone, how about yourself? Gumball Rally, new to it? I don't think so. It's one of the rare movies from my youth, and I can't tell you exactly where or when I was uh, when I saw it. I do know it was late at night, and it was probably on TV 38 in Boston. I think I had already seen Cannonball Run on cable ad nauseum. So it had to have been around like 84 or 85, and was instantly mesmerized and instantly taken with what a superior movie it was to Cannonball Run. So that that was my first experience, and uh, I, I, I love this movie, and uh, I rewatch it. Uh, every couple of years. I have to say, this one's kind of unfamiliar to me because I also grew up watching Cannibal Run and Cannibal Run 2. Love me some Death Race 2000, but Gumball Rally, I really hadn't even heard of it until I was doing research for an article about coast-to-coast race movies and just kind of vehicular mayhem as well, talking a little bit about, you know, Vanishing Point, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. All I know is you just want your Larry. So I am not that familiar with this movie. I watched it for the second time in preparation for this. They really play up that gumball thing. Oh, my goodness. With those opening credits. This man, what a cast. What a star studded cast. And that's the same thing we're going to be saying about a lot of these movies. I think as we go along, though, Michael Saracen not necessarily as well-known as a lot of other people. We talked a lot about him when we discussed They Shoot Horses, don't they? Unfortunately, not a very long career, but I thought he had a lot of uh, good stuff going on. I really like him in this role. You mentioned the the cast being really good in this movie. I think that almost becomes a metatextual gag with these movies, is that it almost ends up being, at least with Cannonball Run, in my opinion – it's almost completely about the cast and nothing else. Seeing them in these wacky situations. And the movie, the, the more recent movie that I watched, Rat Race, which is pretty much just Cannonball Run, that movie, again, lives and breathes off of the cast, just like Gumball, just like Cannonball, just like Cannonball Run. It's like, who are, who are these actors that you love and know and what are they doing that's more or less for a lot of them against type? With Gumball Rally and Cannonball, which sort of came on its heels, these car pictures are are kind of tailor-made to have a, a big cast so you can people it with, you know, lots and lots of interesting actors, not just sort of movie stars, but, you know, character actors and, you know, New York stage actors and such. Uh, with both of these movies, that's an asset. And what you were saying, Chris, is true. It's like this kind of trickle-down effect where by the time it gets to Cannonball Run, it's just about the personalities of those people. Whereas, like, with Gumball Rally, like, even the well-known people just look like regular people. Uh, so it, it adds something to, to the overall effect of the movie. 
Well, and some of them are known now. I mean, at the time, it's Gary Busey and Raul Julia who, I mean, they're known, Even obviously. In 75, who the hell is, who knows who Gary Busey is, you know? Right, right. But now it's like, oh, it's Gary Busey or, you know, Raul Julia. But yeah, no, it's, yeah, with Cannonball Run, it's like immediately Burt Reynolds, immediately Jackie Chan, Farrah Fawcett. It's like, you know who these people are. And especially at the time, you know who these people are. To your point, Mike, with Gumball Rally, I don't want to jump ahead, but this is the best cast of the things that we watched, I think, without even a question. Especially Michael Sarazen, who's just so charismatic as a lead, really. It's interesting how this one really does set the pattern, and we're definitely going to talk about some of the other movies as we go along and how they follow this film. Some of these jokes, some of these gags, this whole thing of the guy who wants to be part of the race, who is that in this one? Jose who wants to be part of the race. And so he does one of these, I'll transport your car from New York to California, allegedly paying this guy, or he's just taking this ride type of thing. That's going to come up. Yes. The driveway that is going to come up in almost every movie that we're going to talk about here. So there is also the mad character who happens to be of a different ethnicity. And this one, he's Hungarian in cannonball. He's, German and in Cannonball Run. Is it Jamie Farr? Is he the crazy one? He, he is. He's he's sort of wacky, right? He's the he all comic relief all the time. Sort of wacky? Sort of? Just kind of? Just a little no, he's bit? Just not, he's not pulling it off. That doesn't mean he's not going for wacky. Oh, I know. He is going for wacky. He's not pulling it off. That's my problem. <laughs> That's I, don't think, I don't think any of these guys are pulling off wacky, honestly. I think the Mad Hungarian pulls it off pretty good, especially because I don't even know if he ever talks. That he he doesn't just yeah he just he's got these like Joe Spinell eyes going and just this the little mustache. I love it. They shoot it where you can see his eyes only for the most part because it's through the visor. It's so effective. It's so effective that they copy it two more times. What's funny about this movie, like you said, Mike, is the formula is so set in stone that they barely deviate from it. I love that Raul Julia is playing an Italian, uh, just and such a lech. This whole thing of his kryptonite is that any woman that's around, he immediately falls for, and that that ends up, spoilers, ends up fucking him over when it comes to the end of the race. It was pretty great. Uh, I also love that uh, Colleen Camp is there at one point when he uh, ends up t- telling the his other driver, Smitty, the rival character, you know, you go ahead, you drive on. I need to have a, like, I don't know, a few hours or an hour with Colleen Camp like you do. There are some things more important than winning. And in this case, he's absolutely right. Colleen Camp is one of these actresses. I keep seeing her in movies from earlier and earlier time periods, and she doesn't age. And I don't understand it. Roll Julia as well. At least he's 35 here, which I was uh, I found out. But he still looks impossibly young. But what a great character. And Roll Julia manages to pull off... What you just brought up, Mike, this sort of silly convention, the kryptonite, like he sees a pretty girl and everything has to stop. And I believe it with this guy, like a wacky trait that he makes real. And he's got this thing, too, where he carries around a squirt gun, but you don't know it's a squirt gun. So he comes in and he pulls this gun on Sarah's and he's just like, you know, how dare you humiliate me? And he gives this huge speech. And I'm just like, 
This is why we love Raul Julia. He is really knocking it out of the park with this silly movie, but he is just giving it his all. And when he pulls the trigger on the gun, I don't know what's really going to happen. And when it ends up being water, I'm like, okay, I really didn't see that happening the first time I saw this. That's like his Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka moment, right? With the cane. Like now we don't know what this character is capable of for the rest of the movie. And what I love is it's clearly a real gun that props is like rigged up. So water will squirt through it because when he's pointing it directly to the camera, there's no mistaking it. And about that scene, th- this is one of the movies that I, you know, introduced to as many people as possible. And years and years ago, I had a friend and I who, for for a, a full decade would say back and forth like you make the jokes like at each other so <laughs> it's uh, he's so fucking funny in this movie what's funny is that character could have been and is in these other movies at least one of them could have been beyond obnoxious and grating and unfunny and it's he's not because Raul Julia doesn't play it all the way he doesn't go all the way like uh, Jamie Farr does in Cannonball. He kind of reins it back a little bit. It's not like madcap. It's kind of verges on slapstick, but it's not madcap. And that's what I would use that word to describe Cannonball Run. This is kind of over the top gumball rally is, but it's still rather reined in. It's a weird hierarchy where Cannonball Run is completely wacky. And Cannonball is a little too serious for its own good. And this one sits nicely in between. It just keeps elevating itself. And that, I think, is why Raul Julia works, because we do get into, with this formula, other characters doing that exact same thing. And it really doesn't work. And I think it speaks to Raul Julia as an actor and to the quality of the story writing, because the screenplay and and the story in this film is is there are some interesting twists, some interesting turns. And then it kind of takes a little bit of an interesting diversion at the end with who ends up winning. I I liked this movie a lot, comparatively. I really enjoyed it. This one, too, is the only one that I can think of where you have – so you've got the rivalry between Sarazen's character and then the Smitty character – which is interesting in in and of itself that there are all these other racers, but really it's pretty much it boils down to a two team race that is also not a man and a woman in each of the cars that they're usually pretty two men, two women. You do have the man and woman that are doing the ride share type of thing across the country. But for the most part, it's really the friendship between prior and Sarazen, the weird cooperation between Raul Julia and the Smitty character. You've got the whole thing of Roscoe, the cop. I don't think you have a cop in any of these other movies. And Roscoe's desperate attempt to spoil this whole race and that he keeps flying from city to city to city and trying to come up with different ways to uh, undermine this race. And it's him undermining the race. It's not the rival undermining the race. There is a little bit of that, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to fuck up Michael Sarazen's car or whatever. It's Roscoe who is trying to do this stuff. There's some of that in Cannonball, though, which is interesting. What's funny is in Cannonball, you have cops and then parole officers, but the cops don't insert themselves. And ultimately in Gumball, the cops don't really do anything because, it, you know, it's it's played for a gag at the end of the movie, a gag that I think really works and a, a fun and a fun, funny and fun way to end the film. But I'm kind of glad that it didn't 
have outside forces that kind of kept the idea pure and all about the race. And you'll we'll see when we talk about some of the other things, like once they start deviating off of that initial path, they start getting lost in kind of weird diversions that don't really go anywhere and don't really add anything to the movies either. Yeah, you know, early on, the, the, some of the early scenes you're talking about between um, Michael Sarazen and Smitty's character, um, that's Tim McIntyre, by the way, play, playing Smitty, who, who is so fantastic as Alan Freed in American Hot Wax. There's sort of a, a, a casual, genial friendship, a camaraderie that goes on amongst all of these characters in Gumball Reality, really, that isn't necessarily missing in Cannonball Run, because those characters are all obviously having a good time as well, but... As grounded in the real world as they are, and as and as sort of far flung fantastic as they are, they seem like genuine people having genuine relationships. The, there's a scene right after the the sort of big introductory scene between uh, Smitty and Michael Saracen's character, uh, just walking and talking in the on the streets of New York, and it feels comfortable and lived in, and uh, and I, I really like that. You know, like uh, that is definitely missing from Cannonball, and it's kind of falsely phoned in in Cannonball Run. It took me a while to even realize that they were rivals at first, because when Sirzen is, he's in the boardroom when we first meet him, and he has this little safe, and he opens up the safe, and there's gumballs inside, and he's just like, okay, you know, it's basically his moment of like, I need to have another one of these rallies. It's kind of like his only way of really expressing himself, I think. So he ends up going and picking up the phone and he calls Smitty and he just says gumball and that's it. Hangs up. That's it. The whole thing starts and that it becomes this whole thing of people getting the gumball call and going out and doing this. And so when they meet up, I'm just like, oh yeah, they're old friends. And you know, that's the guy that is helping him set up this whole thing. And it took me a little while before it's like, oh no, they don't like each other. And there's really this like, we've known each other forever and we just don't like each other. There's like this rivalry that goes back to when we were children. I'm like, oh, okay, that's a very interesting way of approaching this. So it's not the friendly rivalry. It's basically like, I genuinely don't like this guy, but we end up together all the time. And I really like that narrative convention of using the gumball, the word gumball to get everybody's attention because there's nothing like that in any of the other films. And I like that there's this idea that you know, the three of us could be here podcasting and so I get the text and it says gumball and it's like, drop everything. It's time. And I like that as an idea because it makes it more intimate for these characters. Like you're not just showing up and entering yourself into this. Like you're getting, it's like a group of people who are always doing this together. And you get that sense that this is a group of people who are, yeah, like you said, even though some of them are at odds with each other, ultimately they're all sharing a beer in in L.A. at the end of the movie. There's camaraderie between people in the cars in the other movies, but there's no camaraderie among the characters together outside of this movie. And I appreciate that. The early sequence of everyone getting the call to assemble for, for the race, like that whole thing is wonderful. And then they carry that through. We, we're seeing all these people gather, but... We haven't been tipped off at all what the plot of this movie is. That isn't until they get to the, this, what is like a cultish chamber <laughs> within this like hidden like alleyway restaurant. Um, and that's when it gets laid out. And I like that, the, that not only do we get a putting it together sequence there, 
uh, before we're, we get a reveal of what this actually is. But we get a scene afterwards of them, like, all sort of working on their cars together. And it's all of the same sort of piece. Whereas in the early, the other movies that follow, like you said, it's like everyone just sort of knows that they're going to the race and we're just going along with them. There's no mystery or intrigue or, or anything. And then when they get there, they're just a bunch of different people racing against each other. Who cares? In and of itself, that is fun. I mean, wacky races. In I mean, that, that cartoon, this is that live action in a lot of ways. But... I do like the idea that these characters have a vested interest in them finishing the race together. That's the thing. In this movie, I believe that they all want to finish the race together, regardless of what place they're in, they want to finish. In Cannonball Run, I don't, I genuinely don't think they, they all have different interests. And then in Cannonball, I mean, it's kind of its own thing altogether. But if he, how does Cannonball Run feel derivative of this movie? How is that possible? I mean, I know it came later, but it feels so derivative. Well, they all come from the same source, don't they? This is very much inspired by the real thing, the the cannonball uh, rally that they have. And this, in turn, inspired the other films and inspired an actual gumball rally. This really has its roots in things like Chris, you mentioned Wacky Races, the cartoon, which also has its roots in The Great Race, the Blake Edwards film from, I think, 65, which also, then if you go back to, like, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, that's very similar to this, and I'm sure that there are predecessors to that as well. So, what's the original one? I don't know, but there's this weird through line of all of these films where you can be like, oh, well, that's like the Tony Curtis character, and he's like the, you know, the Jonathan Winters character from this one. So it's it's really bizarre how far back this stuff goes, you know, all the way up to, like you said, Rat Race, and there might be ones after that. I mean, Death Race somehow turned into a franchise after 30 years or whatever, it suddenly comes roaring back, pun intended, and now there's all these sequels to, in which I have seen every single one of these Death Race movies, which I am so God sorry. have mercy on my soul. Some of them are really good, and some are just terrible. I feel like Death Race leans a little bit harder into like pro wrestling, if that makes sense. They really like take the characters and amp them up. To the point where they're like, it's a character being played by a person. It is bread and circuses, gladiatorial type games. This Which is, is super future. fun. Yeah, oh god, yeah. Are we talking about Death Race or Death Race 2000? Death Race I'm talking 2000. about Death Race 2000. Okay. Yeah. All right, because you're talking, you're talking about it like in glowing terms, and I can't believe we were talking about Death Race. Okay, never mind. 1975, a year before Gumball Rally comes out. So you could say that this might even be playing on that a little bit as well. But, you know, the whole thing of the pairing and, yeah, different themes and stuff. But there, with this one, I can see where the whole thing with the Stephen Keats character and his partner. All right, Stephen Keats. Ivory Apes own Stephen Keats. <laughs> I, I believe that you mean The Last Dinosaurs own Stephen Keats, but... No, you mean Turk 182, Stephen Keats. See, this is the thing. In this movie, Stephen Keats being weird... I think we're starting the Keats cast, and we don't even know it. 
Yeah, the Keats cast. All of like 30 things he was in. <laughs> I love Stephen Keats. Uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. In Friends of Eddie Coyle, his performance in that is like beyond. Like he should have been a huge goddamn star, Stephen Keats. One of my favorite lines of all time. Life is hard, man, but it's harder if you're stupid. Like that is ingrained in my head. So Stephen Keats comes with me. I have seen him this year more than any other actor because I also saw him in fucking Death Wish where he plays Bronson's son-in-law. I mean, Jesus Christ. I was like, oh, there he is again, 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 again. Fourth time this year. No shit. Not even joking. Yeah, there's only like 20 more movies and then that's everything, unfortunately. So unfortunate is the key phrase with Stephen Keats. But this whole thing of Keats and his partner pretending to be cops in order to beat the system, you know, which we're going to get with the whole ambulance thing in Cannibal Run. Do we have to? We eventually will get there in the second half of the show. But I love that they have this gimmick going on and that they are able to turn it into like the whole thing with the cop that tries to arrest them and they are like oh we're shooting a movie or the camera's over there and keats yeah he's just eating up the scenery i love it i love it and i'm trying to remember the name of the the guy that plays the cop that pulls them over he is just amazing i love his voice um med flory what a great appearance by this guy and that's the thing is i really like all of these performances i won't say that this movie for me is free from flaws like i have to say some of the patterns that it falls into get a little rote after a while there's the whole like okay we're gonna go for a while we're gonna cut back to the two guys who never made it out of the garage we're gonna cut to roscoe trying to upset the race or arrest the people uh, and then we're going to have a whole bunch of crashes, and then we're going to go back to the race and kind of carry on from there. And it, after a while, the editing feels very by the numbers as far as, okay, we're going to have this car, this car, this car. And there's the Hungarian scene again. Exactly. Like it, right. Yeah, like it's it's really the stuff with the mad Hungarian where you notice the pattern of the editing. It's – yeah, it, it – I don't know. It, well, you need a deft hand with this kind of stuff because it can get really monotonous after a while. I can forgive the editing, but I cannot forgive the music in this movie. It's like music from a Kurt Russell Disney movie. It's just like, la, 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 la. Like, when you watch the opening, it people have to be expecting, like, you know, Jonathan Winters or, like, you know, like, like some sort of kitty fair. And, you know, there's a scene where two girls, like, end, end up having sex with these guys so they'll fix their car. This is not for children. No, that's really unpleasant when the two rednecks are there. And the one says something like, don't do anything weird, Joe. Last time they locked us up. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, this weird scenario got even stranger. Like, this was potentially was, – was this movie G-rated? It must have been 75, right? Like, I don't know. They might have gone for a PG. I don't remember any explicit swearing, but right. – You would think the tone of it would automatically give it that, but I don't know. I don't know. That was a little unpleasant. That's Joanne Nail is one of the the drivers in there. The, the lovely Joanne Nail, who I mostly know from Switchblade Sisters, she is fucking awesome in that, and she she's terrific. And everything that I've seen her in so far, which isn't nearly enough, again to your point from earlier with Stephen Keats, twenty two roles that she did. She's this wonderful actress in twenty two things that she's been in over the years. 
always such a drag going back and watching an older movie and finding a performance that is just sparkling and then and then immediately checking the IMDb page and seeing they're you know only a few years afterwards they just stopped acting like this movie is rife with them but then again it has some like Gary Busey who by the way this that's got to be him right like he's not acting that's got to be Gary Busey in this movie right that's Gary Busey figure. long ago Gary Busey yes he brought his own whistle to set that day He's fucking unhinged in this movie, and I loved it. There is not really another character in any of these other movies that is an analog to that car in this movie. And I kind of wish there had been, because they're essentially like the dipshit Dukes of Hazard in the gumball rally. Like, they never try to reapproach that in any of the other movies, which I found strange, because that feels, especially at the time, that feels like a pretty prescient thing to put into your movie is like like they do it in they do it in cannonball with something else and i'm sure we'll talk about it but i liked that gary Busey performance because yeah that is just gary Busey. that's just him that's just him with that hat and everything just screaming and singing and never shutting up you know you're <laughs> yeah drinking while driving this is still gary Busey. like you could probably just go oh he's just sort of it's just gary he's just sort of lively like he hasn't come completely unhinged at this point but like you know it's still a bit much <laughs> his unhinged his unhingedness is being attributed to age i mean he's somewhere around buddy holly's story around this point so he's still turning in some really solid performances i mean not that he doesn't still i mean all the way up to like lost highway he's still just rock solid with stuff but man oh man yeah you you're right he is off the deep end i was really glad to see what's the gentleman's name j pat o'malley who chris we've run into him a few times uh veteran of both kolchak and the bernie miller show so and he's going to show up again for us two more times on bernie miller plays this very you know erudite uh british man I mostly know him though from his voice work. He is just all over the the Disney cartoons from the late sixties. Well, all the way back to the early sixties. He did uh voices in 101 Dalmatians, Alice in Wonderland, Jungle Book. I mean, he was all over Disney stuff, and so he's super familiar with both his voice and his face. Also, the other amazing character pairing in this movie is the two old British men who, again, that's why I like this movie the most out of all the movies we watched of these ilk is because the pairings in this movie are so good. Nobody else tried to do them like the two old British dudes like Gary Busey. It's like they, those are so good that if you tried to copy them, it would just be you ripping it off and not doing it nearly as well. And th- yeah, J. Pat O'Malley and you're like, oh, hello. It's like, what? Whoever thought this up? Like, awesome. Fantastic. It totally works. In the context of this movie, it's just the right amount of caricature to work without being, like I said, super madcap like we get with Jamie Farr in, in Cannibal Run. The only thing that bothers me about those two gentlemen, because I love the characters and I love going to them, is the fact that they seem to be the only two actors always being towed by a rig. They never seem to be driving, whereas everyone else in the movie is obviously driving, sometimes terrifyingly so. (laughs) The scene with Angie being threatened by the bikers, Jose's girlfriend, that's a little much for me at times, but I'm just like, all right, whatever. It's okay. I understand this is a 1970s exploitation picture. You're going to have this, but man, oh, man. 
All three of these movies are a bit too rapey. And in this case, they, they're attacking my third favorite captain of the Starship Enterprise. You remember her from Next Generation, right? This is Captain Garrett of the Starship Enterprise. To any Federation ship, we have been attacked by Romulan warships and require immediate assistance. Oh my god, she's great. So beautiful. Another one where it's like, how is she not on dinner plates, like, with that face? Like, what? That scene is gross. It goes on way too long. I don't know that we get the same thing in Cannonball, but, like, definitely in Cannonball Run, there's an even more egregious moment to come. Well, and that, and that is the thing about this, again, these kind of trio of movies is when they copy each other, they seemingly are just copying everything. And they're not they're not being judicious with their copying because some things do not need to come over <laughs> at all. The treatment of the female characters is not great in any of them, frankly. At least in Cannonball, you got to figure with uh, Mary Warrenov in the car. There's no they're in real no no danger at all. I mean, in Cannonball Run, it's Adrian Barbeau, so... Right, and she's a formidable force, but, like, you know, look, man, they carry them... The bikers carry them into a shed. What's gonna happen there, you know? In every one of these movies, there is a all-female car, which I don't have any issue with, obviously. Aside from the way that they're treated by the movie, by the story, the narrative does not suit... They're not suited to the narrative at all. They're there for crude... Shitty jokes that maybe landed when the movie came out, but I mean, we're past this kind of shitty humor. This movie, if it were written now, wouldn't pander to that. In Gumball Rally, like the, the we've already talked about the scene where the two girls basically trade sex for car repair, but when they're talking afterwards, the, the one girl, you know, says like, it, you know, it's so wistful, like you know, well, sometimes you can't choose where it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, like just a fact of life that somehow elevates Gumball Rally in my mind. Like, they're at least aware of uh, of, of the, the tropes they're uh, playing in. It feels like it takes a long time for them to get out of New York City, though I was pretty happy seeing some of the shots of New York, especially must be early morning when there's no cars on the street and just seeing those empty streets. And then also seeing the Hotel Continental from the John Wick movies in this movie, the Hotel Del Monaco, it's called here. I was like, oh, hey, I know that. It was funny because they were showing John Wick all fucking weekend on one of the, I think it was fucking sci-fi channel. Go figure that. And I just kept seeing the Hotel Continental and I was like, oh, I just saw that in Gumball Rally. That's pretty cool. I'm just a real sucker for empty streets in movies, and nobody did it better than the 1970s, where I think you could still get away with it if you did it Sunday morning, when people were actually still asleep. The West Coast version of that is, for me, Omega Man. Something about an empty New York, and uh, 1970s in particular, empty New York and empty L.A. is just something magnificent, and they do it so well here. Like, even with the few scattered people on the street that they have, it is so empty and canyon-like. It's beautiful. You guys are talking about, uh, you know, New York and, and the beginning of this movie. I appreciate that, you know, because that's the other thing about these movies that we really haven't talked about yet is the in-between moments when they're on the road. Some of these movies don't do a very good job of making it feel like they're not just shooting in the same spot over and over again, which Cannonball Run feels like there's like one 20-mile stretch of highway where they film the entire movie. And it's like, this is a movie about going 
fucking continental. The whole thing is from one coast to the other. If you have driven any amount of time in this country, which I know the three of us all have, one of us more than the other by a fucking mountain, you will know that this country has varied terrain. And some of these movies, this one does a pretty good job. Cannonball Run does not. Cannonball does. But giving us a varied amount of terrain and climbs for them to be driving through. Because, again, in Cannonball Run, not in this movie, but in that movie, it feels like the same 20-mile stretch of highway. Which, it doesn't suit what they're talking about. At least the driving in this movie is interesting. And it seems like the people, like we've mentioned, who are doing the driving are making it look exciting. That's the one thing I really liked about Death Race 2000. I'm a sucker for maps. So the whole thing of showing, all right, we started here and now Frankenstein's car is over here and Machine Gun Vo- Joe Viterbo is over here and, you know, Brunhilde or whatever is over here. And just having that, those maps and how they come back together and they'll have those stops where they, you know, converse and they have their dinner and all that stuff. And then they split back up again and go out. And just, of course, with that, they're all out to kill each other, which I really freaking love. But showing the map and having that be your touch points as far as where these people are. And I just kept thinking like, man, I wish there was a map in some of these movies. I would love it if I know, like you can garner some things like, oh, they must be in Illinois now, or they must be in, you know, St. Louis or whatever. But there's a lot of times where I'm just like, where the hell are these people? I don't Arizona, yeah. Arizona or New Mexico, essentially exclusively <laughs> it's the same stretch of desert highway, baby. Well, that's the thing that I liked about this one is like you do feel like you're in New York City and I think you are in New York City and then you feel like you're on these roads and stuff. It feels very much more like the rain people or two lane blacktop or something where they're actually going places rather than, all right, we're going to go to Los Angeles and we're going to film 20 miles outside of town and, to your point, make it look like it's different places and just shoot that same stretch of highway over and over and over again. I can feel the progression in in this movie. I And, and the most successful of these movies in those driving parts, you actually can feel there is a sense of progression with what's happening. That's when these movies are the most successful. Yeah, I think Cannonball is a little less successful than Gumball Rally. And Cannonball Run is obviously the worst. It just seems like they're in, you know, a 20-mile 20, 20 stretch of Georgia or something. Whereas this, we're definitely in New York. We're at the end, we're definitely at the Queen Mary in Long Beach. And I, I agree, we could have used a, a map, Mike. Like, they're so effective. And what's funny to me is when the movie starts, we get a shot of the Empire State Building and a credit and a subtitle that tells us we're in New York, New York. Like... Okay, uh, we get that, but like, how about 10 minutes from now? Let us know where we are. Like, they, they, we spend a lot of time in New York. And then the next time I notice where we actually are, other than they mentioned Jersey, is Oklahoma, because that's where the police, uh, uh, car, like, uh, basically nearly crashes and we can see the, th- the, the, the decal on the side. If you're going to put a subtitle at the beginning, letting us know where we are, you could continue that through. We, as an audience, we're not going to complain. But the problem is, and the reason they didn't do that is because once you start saying where it's set, you have to make it look like it. And if you don't do that, you can, it just is anywhere. It's a, it's a stretch of highway between LA and New York. And that's why they didn't do it. It's a fucking cheat. It is a cheat 100%. And I get it. It's easier that way because then you can just 
spend your entire budget of the movie on alcohol for Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise. Yeah, but no matter what your location was in the 1970s in a TV show, it was shot in Los Angeles. And we, they just said, this is now- I'm not this disagreeing is, this with This is you. Prague. And we went, okay. But the problem is in this, it's like the expectation is they're moving. That's the whole thing. And, and they're just, they're not doing a very good job of showing that in actuality. Is there actually anything between New York and L.A.? It's just a bunch of hicks, right? Right. <laughs> they got to get out their tractors to come see this movie. Fuck all those people in the <laughs> yeah. flyover states. Yeah, the flyover states really going to see a Michael Sarazen movie. Pish posh. The problem with this movie is it set the bar way too high for everything else that I watched. I should have watched this last, I guess. There's a joy to that. I really like when Smitty and Bannon, the Michael Sarazen character, come together at one point when there's the quote-unquote rabbit who is playing them against the cops and playing the cops against them and collecting money from everybody. And when they realize that something has gone wrong and they're just like, okay, let's let's take care of this guy. I like when they pair up for a while and that rivalry just melts away because they have a common enemy in rabbit and that guy's just a piece of shit. I really like that. Yeah. I mean that, that interplay again, you don't get that in any of these other movies. You don't really get the interplay between the cars actually being positive. It's all very adversarial and negative. And downright murderous in one of them. It's very gentle, the the, the beatdown that they give to this guy, too, which I actually appreciate it. If this was Cannonball, oh, my God, they would have cut his head off. <laughs> or at least shot him right through the forehead. Yeah, it would have been bad. So when Michael Sarazen tosses the guy's steering wheel into the dirt, like you can have this in a moment, I was like, oh, now you're being too nice. Take the steering wheel. This guy was trying to fuck all of you. Come on. He is Canadian. Yeah, and that does lead to one of the best parts in the movie, which is when Roscoe, the sheriff, you know, looks up at the sky and is just like, Why? Why me? You're an asshole, Roscoe. That's why. I like that they cut to some random cop walking past. Like, they put it back in, they put it in in voiceover, but, like, it was him. It was this guy who said it. It was not the actual Our Lord and Savior yeah. speaking down to, <laughs> right. to Roscoe. I was also glad to hear the uh, little Casey Kasem uh, cameo in here as well. That was nice. He's uh, always a fan doing the traffic. He's acting too. It's that ain't Casey Kasem's regular patter. He's like really going for it, like a drive time kind of guy. Those boys uh, duked it out with that pesky poltergeist. Oh, I love it. I love it. By Casey Kasem. The very unexpected ending of you know, Chris. You mentioned like who wins is not the person that you expect to win, and then when Sarazen's just like. At the very end, he's just like, gumball. And they do it again, and now they're going to race back to New York. I fucking love that little twist at the end. That's so nice. What a hopeful, happy ending, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. And it make, and it and like I said, it really makes me feel like they're in this for the race. It's, it's about the race, not about who wins. Like, they're just there for the race, to have a good time. As long as everybody finishes, you know, awesome. That's what's more important. And I, li- I like that. It's a lot less adversarial, which I mean, again, I, I understand like an adversarial version of this movie could be good. It's not Cannonball Run. Let's put it that way. It either has to be this or Death Race 2000. Can't have it either way. Like murderous intent toward each other. That's kind of, you know, hinted at and they do a little kind of dirty tricks to each other. Doesn't fly. Either be nice and have a good race or fucking try and murder each other from the get go. No one's hiring assassins in this movie. Yeah, which is a failing, I think. 
So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we're going to play an interview with Professor Sam Graves himself, Nicholas Pryor, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. My name is T2756. Would you like to have sex with me now for money? Worst Movies Ever Played is back with three new VHS movies for your ears. Sextopede, you're alive again. How I've missed you. Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast, and we mean anything. You didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played wherever you get your podcasts. I am so happy to speak with you again. We talked a few years ago about Smile, and we are covering the film The Gumball Rally, and I would love to hear a little bit more about that and, and your experience on working on the film. The whole thing started with an article in the Los Angeles Times about the Cannonball Baker Sea to Signing Sea Memorial Trophy Dash. And Chuck Bale read the article, and he he thought this would make a great movie. So he bundled it up, and he sent it off to a man named Guy McElwain, who was an executive at Warner's, as well as a, an agent for CAA. I don't know which was which. I don't know which hat he was wearing at the time. But he, he, he sent an overlong saying, insert tongue-in-cheek and read. And Guy thought it would be a good movie, too. So that started everything going. And the audition process was quite remarkable because it's such a large cast and so many different parts. I remember Chuck was given an office in Warner Brothers Producers Row. They had a whole bunch of little buildings all stitched together. And there was there were lines of people showing up to go into Chuck's office and come out and go in and come back. Well, we all auditioned for Chuck. Then we had an opportunity to read the script, which was, I think, the funniest script that I can remember ever being given. I literally laughed until my sides ached. It was wonderful. It was just wonderful. And then I got very excited. I told everybody I was talking about how much I wanted to do it. Oh, yeah, I forgot my mustache. I had a mustache at the time. Whenever I was out of work for long enough, I had a kind of a, a superstition that I should immediately start trying to grow a beard or mustache or something to create some facial hair, and maybe that's what they'd be looking for. As it turned out, they thought it was a great idea. So they assembled the cast, and that's when it began to get very complicated and kind of funny. They said all of the different people and all of the different backgrounds, and Chuck in charge. Chuck was a, a stuntman who had gotten successful as a stuntman and become a supervisor, and then he graduated to second unit on some comedy movies, and he was very good at complicated traffic situations, and he was not at all afraid to either be intentionally a little loose about his permits, but he would be he would happily screw up all of San Francisco, which he did a couple of times, I was told. So he was he wanted to do a feature. He wanted to do a movie. And this was before anybody outside the business knew he was. He did the stuntman, the movie the stuntman after that, with his monogram saddlebags and he got a little better known after that. But nobody 
in the business kind of knew who he was. And he's all of a sudden, he's got this cast of all of these different actors and all of these different situations. So the first thing that happened was they told us, we who were in the race, that what they needed to do was to train us so that we would be comfortable being towed at 100 miles an hour. Camera crew, Gil, what's his name, and his camera group, he had told Warner Brothers that he could he could tow any of the cars involved. I don't think he knew at the time that one of them was going to be a Rolls at 100 miles an hour. So they said, terrific. So they hired a couple of not Formula One drivers, but lesser drivers, Formula there was a Formula 500 at that time, and I think a Formula 200, a fellow named John Morton, who was very much in the mold of uh, Martin Short, kind of a short guy, dry sense of humor, and another driver named Wes Dawn, who was Bob Dawn's brother, the makeup Dawn's. And they had a small fleet of Datsun 250, 270, whatever the number was not 300s, to take us to a track near Los Angeles and just get us used to being driven at 100 miles an hour. Have you ever been driven at 100 miles an hour? I don't think I've ever even got past maybe 80. And you were driving, right? I was driving. I wasn't being pulled. Whole different experience. To be driven, you get in this little car, and (laughs) Wes, or in my case, Sean Morton says, uh, Okay, all set. And yes, and what he does is he floors it. He just, he floors it, and you get thrown back against the seat. And <laughs> what flies through my mind was my father's admonition when he was teaching me to drive. And he told me when he was teaching me to drive that when you're on the road and you see a sign that says turn coming up and says 40 miles an hour, he says, the road has been engineered to take 40 miles an hour. If you go faster, you're going to fly off the road. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they don't build a road like that. They make the sign like that. After the initial shock of taking turns at speed, it was pretty exhilarating. And then he asked me if we would want to switch seats and could I drive? And sure. And... Uh, I I uh, I, I kind of liked it. I I I, kinda, I wasn't going as fast as he was, but I kind of liked it, and I liked him, and we had a wonderful time. So we would keep going down to this track. It was part of a marine base south of Los Angeles. We got pretty good, and we got pretty comfortable. Now that included me and Tim McIntyre, who didn't really need it because he owned a Porsche and used to race on weekends. And uh, the girls, Joanne Nail and uh, what's-her-name, who had done all the soaps, they were supposed to win the race, by the way, originally. So a whole bunch of us got back and forth down there, and we would fool around until we burned out the brakes, which you do pretty quickly because it turns out when you go into a turn or a corner, as they call it, at speed, you don't pump the brakes. You hit the brakes once hard, bang, like that. And then you don't hit the brakes again, because if you've timed it out right, that you hit the brakes and that slows it enough for you to start your turn into the corner and you don't have to break again. This was also the days fairly recently when race cars 
required the driver to do something called heel-toe, which is your left foot is a clutch. Your right foot has to handle both the brake and accelerator. And it's a dance back and forth between brake, clutch, hit the, hit the accelerator to raise the accelerator speed so when the clutch re-engages, it's going at the same rate the car is going. Because if it isn't, it'll stop it or it'll race the engine and no good thing happens. So all of this is, is what's involved in driving these, not the Datsun. The whole idea was that we were not supposed to drive anyway. We were supposed to be towed because what they did in those days for car movies was they towed the car and the driver faked the wheel action and talked to his passenger. Then they, they stopped the car and they changed the cameras and all the rest of it. And then you're back out and they're towing it. And what you're facing as you're being towed is the back of the camera car with the camera crew and the cinematographer and the director and the sound people and the script supervisor and all of those people sitting and they're all doing what they're doing. And that's how they did car movies. And when they backed off, to do the stunts, they drove 20, maybe 25 miles an hour, and they stopped down the camera, which shoots 32 frames a second. They stopped it down maybe 31 or 31 and a half, not very much, but that gave the illusion of speed. Chuck didn't want to do that. Chuck wanted to shoot speed for speed, speed for speed, which meant he needed to get the camera car up to 100 miles an hour. So, okay, he started running into people who had various driving histories. Raul, God love him, had driven nothing other than an occasional VW in Manhattan. But he didn't really drive at all. Who drives in New York? So they brought him out. God bless him. He flew out. I guess he was doing a show at the time. He flew out on the red eye. I met him on a bus. We got a little bus that toward the end of our training period would take us up to Willow Springs, which is a track north of Los Angeles, which is a proper big, pretty good-sized racetrack where they do a lot of testing. And it's been in a lot of movies. And you can open it up a little more there. And Raul was slumped over in the, in the bus going up to Willow Springs. He's going to have a driving lesson. Well, Raul has had no idea about driving for speed or any of the rest of it. His idea of slowing up the car is to put your foot on the brake, which you cannot do more than 90 miles an hour. You have to gear down. Raul doesn't know about gearing down, and he's, he's half asleep to begin with. However, we get through the driving lesson without any accidents. And some people get good, some people so-so, some people don't trust them to do anything. Speed for speed, speed for speed. That's all we kept hearing. Okay, fine. In the meantime, they cast Michael, which was not an easy thing to do because he wasn't really crazy about the idea. It turned out he had had a kind of a bad car crash in a sports car in the recent past. But Guy McElwain was a friend of his and kind of talked him into it and sweetened the deal a little bit, which I did not know for some time. And that was 
he got he got promised one of the cars at the end of the movie. That helped persuade him. So we're off to New York, and that's when it starts to get really fun. New York is where the race begins, and New York is where we will shoot all sorts of footage of the little cars starting through the city streets. We go off to New York, and it was, of all times of the year, it was Christmas. I don't know whether you've been in Manhattan for Christmas, but it's a time to go because the city has a whole different feeling, a, a great sort of party atmosphere all, all over. And the crowds on the street, they're not the head down herds that you see, the Fifth Avenue shots. They're looking and they're laughing and they're, 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 so, they're celebrating. Well, in the meantime, we are getting set up to drive in the streets. Now, we will be driving loose. We won't be pulled because we've got to, we've got to get out of the garage and we've got to take various routes. So the biggest question is, are they going to be able to rig the cameras to the cars so that we can drive as fast as we dare? Because as stunt drivers, you know, do 20, 25 miles. No, no, no. No, the Chuck keeps saying, really honking, really coming, really smoking. He kept talking about big, clanging balls. Tim McIntyre did a whole routine imitating Chuck talking about his big, clanging balls. He wants us to go fast. Okay, well, he's got a whole bunch of stunt drivers. Now, the stunt drivers, while we're in New York, have to do a lot of stunt footage. And they are not used to doing stunt footage fast. It's a whole new set of, of instincts and, and reflexes. So the very first day of shooting, which is a very big deal on any movie, especially cars and stunt drivers and everything, there were some problems. They're shooting down Wall Street, and they're doing stunts, and they, <laughs> they sideswipe six parked cars. None of them ours. Bang, 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 bang. Because it, this stunt driver, just, Chuck is saying, faster, faster. Stunt driver loses it. Bang, 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 bang. Six side-swiped cars. They do, they do some kind of stunt they're trying to do in front of the Del Monaco restaurant. And the driver loses it, skids off the road, takes a hydrant off right at the curb. Water. Not supposed to happen. And in the meantime, the camera mounts are not really secure, and the picture is probably going to be a little jiggly. So in the meantime, we are getting set up to keep going because it's a movie. It's Warner Brothers. It's production managers got this big bag full of cash, and he's going around paying people off. And speed for speed for speed. So the first time Michael and I drove, was some footage. This in the movie is after we have exited the garage. We're coming up Park Avenue South, and we're headed toward the Grand Central. I, can't, I forget what they call it, but there's a passageway through the Grand Central that puts you down on Lower Park Avenue. And then we're going to go up Park Avenue to 47th, 8th or something, hang left, and head west. And we're going to be driving loose. So what, what that means when you're driving loose is they've got the camera rig on the side of the car and they have the recording, the recorder on your feet or by the, 
your feet on the bottom floor of the car, and you make your own sticks to imitate the sticks for the cutting, and you set off. You're driving off. Well, okay, okay. Really honking, really moving, big clanging balls. We look at each other and say, what the hell? I mean, besides, we got the traffic controlled. It's supposed to be very early in the morning, so there aren't any cars we have to worry about. So we, and Michael is used to driving a sports car, so we, uh, we're driving, we're, we're, we're going pretty fast, what we think is pretty fast. And in the Cobra, it all feels very fast anyway. So we come shooting right at Grand Central, which comes very quickly at us, and we go zipping back and forth and down the incline and hit the bottom of the road where there is, of course, a grate. There's a grate there. The Cobra is not really all that stable to begin with. And when it hits the grate, it bounces off at an angle. And it kind of goes at an angle toward the side of Park Avenue. And Sarazen is, is, is fighting the wheel, and he finally gets it back. And he doesn't lose it, thank God. And we go straight down to 47th, and he takes a big breath, and he just goes left. And we go about a half a block, and we stop, and we look at each other. And we both think, what the fuck have we gotten ourselves into? And in the meantime, Chuck comes racing up, and he says, that's terrific, but we got to do it again, because when you hit the bottom of the road, you kind of skid it off at an angle. And we said, we know. We were there. We know we did that. He said, we, we know. That looks, looks like you kind of lost it for a minute. We said we did. So, <clears throat> okay. In the meantime, in addition to this, the streets, the sidewalks are filled with people because it's a movie. And, you know, and who's in the movie and what are they doing? And it's supposed to be six o'clock in the morning because there's no traffic. But the streets are filled with people. And we said to Chuck, well, what, what are you going to do about the streets filled with people? He said, don't worry about it. You, you won't notice them. Oh, no? Okay. So we do it two or three more times, and we get a little better and a little calmer and a little faster. And I get a little more nervous each take because Michael has got his hands full with the car and steering it and everything else. I don't have anything to do except sit there and watch the world coming at me. So I think I better figure out something to occupy my hands at any rate. I decide I need a stopwatch, and I need a map, and I need a compass, and I need sunglasses. I, I need a whole lot of stuff to keep myself busy. So in the meantime, we have all of the other racers and their cars and their, and their routines. So it's a busy time, and the stunt drivers are trying to stay out of trouble. So finally comes the big, the big day, the start of the race, which is probably my favorite part of the movie. The start of the race, I think they really nailed it. The whole business with Norman Burton and the car and Michael, Michael Saracen and the nuts, nuts and the dropping sack, and Norman is sitting there with the the sound and the fury over his face, the quiet of the city streets, and we shot. It was a garage. I think it was in the, the East 30s. It was a garagery we all came shooting out of. And that transition, that sound transition, when the sound hits, 
the echoing city streets and Norman sets up and the opening, the whole thing. Beautiful. I, I love that part of it. And then they intercut the, the various things that we had all done. And it just works wonderfully until you get to the Jersey Turnpike. And I'm busy doing things with my stopwatch. I don't even I don't even know where we are. I'm making notes. And it seems to me we are going faster than a bat out of hell. We're not really, but in that little car, it seems like it. Terrific. Everybody is really happy with the New York footage. Speed for speed, speed for speed. We get to the Jersey Turnpike. It's a whole new game. We got the camera car, and we got all the things that you need to get tied to the camera car. And the rigging is different now because the camera's in front of us, and it can shoot down at us, and we don't need side shots. And we're sitting there. I can't remember. I think your front wheels are off the ground. I think your back wheels are on the ground. And they start off down the Jersey Turnpike. Well, all of those people on the back of the camera car create this enormous wind draft that sweeps down over the car and takes their faces and pulls them back like people on rocket sleds. We can't talk very well. We can't get out of the breeze because they're creating it. And... The funniest thing of all is, these are the days in which everybody is going, supposed to go 55 miles an hour. Not the Jersey Turnpike. The Jersey Turnpike has always had a 60-mile limit. Whether it's all of the people on the back of the truck, or whether, as we all thought, it was a camera truck guy lying to us, he's barely doing 60. He's barely nursing it up to 70. On the mean, in the meantime, we're talking as best we can about how fast we're going and how easy it is. In the meantime, that the other drivers on the Jersey Turnpike see this contraption going by, and they say, what the hell is that? So they pull up, and they are driving alongside of us, and they are looking out the window and pointing at each other and at us. And in the meantime, we are saying, wow, we are certainly making good time when everybody's driving the same speed. So big, big conference because we can't make the rest of the movie. We can't do it. So the decision is made that the actors who are in the race will have to do their own driving. And as far as the gags go, the set pieces, that they, you know, where the cars nearly collide with each other, the stunt guys can do that. And the stunt guys will do that the way they do everything, 20, 25 miles an hour with a lot of handbrake. And they do that once. The first time they try to do that, Chuck has a hissy fit and said, no, 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 no. So he's busy restaging all of that so they can drive faster. And in the meantime, it is necessary for there to be shots of the cars driving by or driving in relationship to each other. The actors are doing the driving. We, we are reporting to a base camp, and they put the cameras, they put the rigs back on the side of the car, and the sound guy sets up the recording equipment, and they rig the lights, such as we can carry, and... They send us off, and we drive whatever we're driving, and we play whatever scenes the dialogue we're doing, and then we go back to base camp, 
and the technicians reach in and turn things off and make sure we actually got the scene. And in the meantime, they're all getting hazard pay because, I mean, they're out in the, in the base camp turning on machines and turning off machines. Anyway, what we discover is that everybody has not told us the truth about anything connected with this because we just we need them to do stuff that just can't be done. We need a lot of highway footage, and we've got to use federal highways to shoot it. The state of Arizona tells us that they will close a federal highway. You're not supposed to be able to close a federal highway. Okay, they'll close a federal highway. They get our business. So all of a sudden, <laughs> it's a big country, but it's no bigger than Arizona because everything after the Jersey Turnpike is Arizona. We go to Arizona. We have two locations. One is in Phoenix, and the other is in Flagstaff, where we spent most of the time. It turned out that Arizona was lying <laughs> about their highways. Oh, who, who told you that? Close a federal highway? No. What they promised to do was to patrol the highway. Okay, that means they're going to be around. Okay, I guess that's good. How it actually works is the camera crew is about a half a mile down the highway, and they're on an overpass with their camera crews and their lights and their description and all those people. And we are in the picture car. If, we're, if it's our shot, we have a walkie-talkie, and we say, this is the picture car. Uh, are you ready for us? And they say, and we say, this is a picture car. Did you, did you come ahead? Well, what do you think? Uh, shall we come? And finally, Sarazen said, oh, for Christ's sake, and we're coming. And he throws it down, and bang, we go off the we're we're in the middle of the highway. We're on a, in the in the uh, the middle part where the where the where the sand is, and we go racing out of there, really honking, really steaming, really pushing, headed toward the overpass in traffic with cars all around us. Now the cars are doing fifty-five, maybe sixty, maybe a little more than that. We are doing minimum one hundred and twenty. You see these cars. First gear in the Cobra and the Ferrari and the Porsche. First gear takes you up to 90. Then you shift into second gear. That takes you up to 120. Then third gear takes you up to 140. And fourth gear takes you as much above 140 as you have the stomach to travel. So when you accelerate in these cars, you're going 90 miles an hour in first gear. They don't know that. The other drivers don't know that. They they look in the rearview mirror and they see this little blue car and they look again and it's right there. We are threading our way through traffic as best we can, going as fast as we can. And as we approach the overpass, they see all this stuff going on above all their cameras pointing on and they, they slow down. They slow down and look around and see what's happening. Sometimes we just had to abort and go back into the, not to count the times when we are so far away that nobody can see the guys on the overpass, or the guys on the, uh, on the overpass, 
and we start off, and one of the patrolmen pulls up behind us with the siren, and he's all excited because he thinks he's got a real one. He's got somebody going 90 miles an hour. We got so they wouldn't even stop. They would just drive by and say, you were that goddamn movie. All right. The incredible thing that happened was that there were no accidents. Nobody got hurt. Nobody ever got hurt, except on the very last day of shooting, the motorcyclist finally catches up with the rest of the of the of the party at the parking Queen Mary parking lot, goes sailing through the parking lot and off the ramp into the water and broke his wrist. That's the only thing that ever happened. Otherwise, we all survived. It was a remarkable experience. They were just terrific. Tim McIntyre is a is a rock musician, was a rock musician. And as well as being as close to Hollywood royalty as we had in the movie, his father was John McIntyre, and his mother was equally well-known. I can't think of her name now. He was terrific. Raul was terrific. And there was only one problem, and that is it's not as funny as it was on the page. Yeah, I, I noticed this the first time I saw it with an audience. As we approach something funny there was a like a like a surge in the theater and, and the joke never landed it didn't get funny it didn't get funny it was funnier in french but that's because people are speaking faster and 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 that kind of gave it some energy the problem was this i didn't know enough at the time it's shooting comedy it's fascinating you've got a, a funny thing a gag or a line, a situation, piece of action, something. If you draw a circle around it, 360 degrees, there's one, maybe two, usually only one angle from which it's funny, from which it shoots funny. There's a famous story told about Mike Nichols when he was shooting Catch-22, and Orson Welles came to do his bit, and they came to the set for the first shot, and Mike Nichols was supervising the cameraman setting up for the first shot, and he happened to glance over at Orson Welles, and Orson Welles was, and Mike Nichols shook his head, Orson Welles shook his head. So, well, where then? Uh, I'll put it here. I'll put it here, okay? And Orson Welles shook his head. And finally, Mike Nichols put it there, and Orson Welles did this. If you don't have that angle, the audience doesn't laugh. And there's a whole movie that illustrates this, and nobody has ever pointed it out. It's a mad, 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 mad world. The first sequence, the death of Jimmy Durante on the road, is funny because, I don't know, by luck or by somehow, they got the right point of view. For the entire rest of the whole huge movie. And they've got every comedian that ever existed and Ethel Merman. And they aren't funny until the very end when Spencer Tracy comes on and they were all scared of him. And the movie kind of settles down a little bit. If you don't have that angle, and this is something that they all learned when they were starting out, with all those one and two reelers and all those setups and all those people like George Stevens 
We started off as a gag man, people whose business it was to find that angle. And Chuck, he never had it. And it was a shame because the script was hilarious. What was it like working with Michael Sarazen? It was great. Very, very bone, bone dry sense of humor. He was the only one of the drivers who had a car crash. It was on the Hollywood freeway, and it was one of the scenes about our approaching Los Angeles. And we shot, it was the first shot of the day, and he was a little bit sleepy, and we got out into traffic. And we were inching along, and the way traffic does when you're on the freeway, and a gap opened up in front of us, and he touched the accelerator and then got his feet kind of mixed up and bang into the back of this car in front of us. Well, their big day. <laughs> Warner Brothers just rear-ended you. And nobody got hurt. Nobody got, but he got roundly teased for that. He did most of the driving, which was quite fine with both of us. But there was a sequence in which my character had to drive. And it turned out to be one of the more complicated parts of the film because A, it's at night, and B, it was outside of Flagstaff on the twisty, turning mountain roads. And it is a scene where Bannon and Graves overtake Smith and, and Franco. So I had to be driving, and I had to be driving such that I could, I was behind a car and you could see what car it was. And then I pulled out and passed and then he was behind me. And we're, we're doing pretty good. We're poking along pretty well. And it was a sequence in which we had to do a pretty careful amount of driving. And then we had to be covered by stunt drivers who were going to fill in the driving that wouldn't obviously use us. And our stunt drivers were the two guys who had taken us to the California tracks. However, what nobody counted on was the fact that this was their chance to shine. This was their chance not only to deliver the shots it needed, but to open it up a little bit, open it up a little bit. And I remember we kept coming back to put film in the camera and get set up and go out and do something else and come back. I became aware that they seemed, West on particularly, West seemed a little bit antsy, a little bit excited. Well, it, there was a tricky part of the sequence, and that is it was a long, long corner. It wasn't a sharp corner. It was a right turn that just seemed to go on and on forever. And then just when you thought it was going to straighten out, it kept turning. So the chaos and people back and forth and, and, and the camera crew, and it's night. And Michael, this was the only time Michael really had to ride for any length of time. And he was terrified. He was absolutely terrified. And he couldn't even use any of my, my gadgets if he wanted to. So it was dark. And so his solution was to get drunk and go to sleep which I thought was probably very bright, except it made it <laughs> conversations kind of one-sided. But all he did was grunt anyway. And then all this chaos, I, I see myself trying to say, now, Wes, there's this long right turn. 
be careful because it keeps turning. And he's kind of nodding and nodding and nodding. So the result is he didn't and skidded, lost it, and went off the road. Well, he couldn't go very far off the road because it was too many trees around. But, and he was not hurt, thank God. But we pretty much wrapped a Mitchell 800 camera. And that's unbelievably expensive. So they had to have another meeting at Warner Brothers. And uh, Wes got a ticket back to Los Angeles. That was Those were the only accidents. Michael was, was just great. And the car that he decided to pick was a Mercedes. We had that classic convertible, the one that just kept going up and up and up in value. And uh, I think he was very happy with it. It feels like there were probably a lot of actors that you didn't really even get to interact much with other than those beginning and ending scenes. You didn't get a chance to interact with anybody except who you were driving with. The result was it was it was a more cohesive group than might otherwise have been because everybody was around for the whole time, for the whole shoot. It was, I don't know, it was 16 weeks, I think. The big controversy over who wins the race. The girls were supposed to win the race. Yeah, that was one of the best parts of the script. Leon was way ahead of his time. But the girls were the girls. The whole tone of the of the shoot and uh, and Chuck was so chauvinistic, was so, I mean, they didn't have a chance. They felt it very strongly. Joanne was pretty cool about everything, but her, her, her older sister, Susan Flannery, she was really pissed the whole movie because she felt male, male pigs all over the place. And uh, Michael was a star. He wasn't supposed to be the star, but he was a star. So he, we were going to win. However, <laughs> there was another unexpected surprise in store for us. And that is, whenever you win something in a movie and people rush to congratulate you, tuck your head in, pull your arms in, cover your head, and because they just beat the living crap out of you. They, you if you watch them closely, if you ever see a movie where they do that, everybody's patting you on the back. But they're all looking for screen time, so they figure if they pat you very hard, they'll be they'll see themselves in the shot. Such that when I went on later to make a movie called Risky Business, we started shooting. We were in Chicago, and the first night we shot, I met Janet Carroll, who played my wife, and uh, she was very excited to be doing the film. And she said, you're much more experienced than I am. Do you have any advice? And I said, yes, watch out for the locals. She said, okay, I'll keep that in mind. What I did not know was that she was a local. They had found her in Chicago. It came up in risky business or something. It came and patted us on the back for doing something. It was a remarkable experience. And I give Chuck full credit for being able to manage the whole thing. Do you remember how was the movie received when it came out? There wasn't a star, and there wasn't really anybody in there whom anybody recognized, by and large. Warners, God love them, thought that if it did any kind of business at all, they would be willing to, to go and do a sequel in Africa for the, the big race there. 
But, and that's what the, that's what the end of the movie is all about, is to set up the sequel. It never was. But it didn't, it, uh, it was very forgettable. And it's a shame because, well, mostly for Leon's script. Leon is, he's one of those screenwriters who was born to write movies. And, and it, it was obvious from a very early age. When he was in elementary school, he was a fifth grader. And he wrote all by himself a story called The History of the Machine Gun. And he showed it to his teacher, and she was amazed. And it happened that a third-grade teacher was sick with something, and they were having a terrible time keeping the kids behaved. And so in desperation, they got Leon down to tell them the history of the machine gun. And, and he, he could just he could just rattle off scenes. There's one that was a favorite of his that I never quite pulled off. I can't remember. But at one point in the course of the trip, we get a little bleary. We get a little shell-shocked. And Graves suddenly summarizes the theory of relativity. I don't think it's in the movie, or if, the, if it is, it doesn't make any sense particularly. I couldn't do it. But Leon just tossed it off. It was just, I, he was, he was, he, it's a wonderful script. Is Gary still around? Gary Busey? He is. I don't know how cognizant he is right now. He wasn't terribly cognizant then. Because he's always blowing that whistle in the movie. It's like, did he just bring that with him, or was that part of the character? I forgot the whistle. He might very well have brought it with him. He was very, he was very young and had mostly been a big-time college football player, University of Oklahoma. I think probably the whistle was his idea. I remember shooting the scenes where we were all gathering at Gallagher's Steakhouse uh, in New York City. And for me, it was a great treat, the whole location there, because I had only just recently moved to California. I had been in New York the whole time. I remember watching Gary crossing Upper Broadway or Upper 7th Avenue, wherever, against uh, Times Square, looking like a cowboy. It was remarkable. It's very funny how many times over the last two, three months, Stephen Keats just keeps popping up in movies that I've been watching. Stephen was pretty much a firecracker. Our paths kept crossing at auditions. I never worked. I never did anything else with him. Uh, but I remember that he had a very complicated domestic situation. He lived out in Reseda at a time when Reseda was way out. And I remember one night, a whole bunch of us wound up at his house. We saw each other afterwards, which is, which is also unusual. At least it wasn't my experience. I got a call one night from Tim McIntyre, who had just seen Smile. He'd never seen Smile before. And he loved it, and he thought I was wonderful in it. And I wound up spending some time with them. He played fiddle in a rock band that he and John Rubenstein put together. And they were very eager to score Gumball. And they were very put out when they didn't get the job. They hated the score. Especially if they thought they could do better, I I think anybody could have done better. Dominic was boop, 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 boop. Well, oddly enough, the score is, though it was years and years before the movie 
is very reminiscent of the score for It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Sort of popcorn-y. I wanted to ask you what you've been working on lately. I was very surprised when you showed up in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That was great to see you. Thank you. I was surprised, too. Marvel is very super electronic, which I guess you would expect. And I am obviously not. If you can see how I've been wrestling with these earphones, I have no sense of that at all. But when you audition, or when I audition, you get sent a script, or you get sent, it might be a dummy scene. No one will tell you. Well, what, what is this? Just say the words. Just go ahead with it. Well, I did Elderly Retainer, and what's that all about? I don't know. So a couple of weeks passed, and then I get an email from them saying, can you make him evil? And I said, sure, give me something evil to do. No, 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 no. No, same scene, but evil. And that's all they would tell me. They wouldn't tell me why. I don't know what the hell I did, but whatever I did, they thought was evil. So, P.S., I got the job. It took a long time for them to tell me that there was a little piece of script, because I hadn't read the script. I had no idea who was doing anything to what. There was a little scene later in the movie when he blows up a bus full of rebel soldiers. But they couldn't come out and tell me that. They Everything very close to the vest. I don't know. Everybody, I suppose, worried about... Same thing happened when I was working on Hunger, Hunger Games. I was so paralyzed with fear that somebody's going to reveal a plot point six months before the picture is released. And then they, the shooting is very odd because I, I was lucky in that I, there was actually a scene or some kind of continuity involved in what was happening on the plane, which was a rare thing in the film. And I spoke to the director about, I said, this is a very long scene. And she said, yes, the script is like that. There are long scenes and then action, and long scenes and then action. They hired a linguist to create a language, a language that was spoken by some of the people in the film, but not all of the people. And if anybody wanted to spend the time and effort, I was promised would parse out, would be perfectly understandable, would be perfectly and gobbledygook. But, but they had her, and she, bless her heart, she corrected pronunciation. Thank God I only had two lines. Oh, yes, and it was the longest meal penalty I've ever had in 60, 70 years of doing this. They just kept working. They didn't stop to eat. and. As a result, I think I had a meal penalty that was eight hours, nine hours or something. I don't know. I finally was eating tuna fish on the plane. They don't care. I did another film that I very much enjoyed doing uh, that was fairly recent called Dr. Sleep with Ewan McGregor. But it's a very dark, dark film. Every once in a while, something comes along. I'm glad you're still working. Are you currently doing anything right now? No, at the moment, I am happily hiding with Christina. We are very lucky. We live in a beautiful place uh, on the shore, on the water. And except for being hot, and it's hot all over, we couldn't be happier. 
Mr. Pryor, thank you so much for your time. It is always such a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Cannonball. An old cannonball is going to be passing you like you weren't even there. Anyone can enter and anything goes in a squealing, smashing outlaw race across America. Uh, I want to make a little bet on the Trans-American Grand Prix. Can you handle $20,000? Gentlemen know each other, don't you? Mr. Redman, Mr. Buckman. I believe we run into each other once or twice. It's a cross-country demolition derby. I meet to win this one. And if you so much as come within 100 miles of me, you're going to wind up in my tire tracks right up your... The winner gets 100000 The losers keep what's left of their cars. Nice, huh? Get me the highway patrol. We're trying to get a word here with Brad Phillips, organizer of the race. Brad, tell me, your race has been called an outlaw sporting event. Do you have any comment on that? Well, the police and safety officials around the country get upset because our drivers tend to exceed the speed limits. One speeding ticket and you're back in prison. Oh, God, there's trouble. It's a freeway free-for-all that hits with the impact of a head-on collision. I bet this car could beat anything on the road. This car the winner. Cannonball. All right, we are back and we were talking about the Cannonball Run. But first, really, let's talk about Cannonball a little bit. It came out the same year as the Gumball Rally. Cannonball, I don't know how successful the movie is, but there are a lot of things that are really damn fun to watch about it, especially if you're a fan of AIP, the whole Corman camp, because every Corman alum seems to have something going on in here. We've got Dick Miller. We've got Mary Warnoff. This is directed by Paul Bartel, co-written by Don Simpson. Hello. Got cameos in here from so many of the major directors. You've got your Joe Dantes, your Arkus, you've got your Martin Scorsese, you've got a little cameo in here by Sylvester Stallone, you've got David Carradine leading this, you've got another Carradine, Robert, in tow. You've got so many just amazing actors, but I have to say, this it feels like a pale imitation of a movie that is yet to come. It feels like Cannibal Run. And it also feels like a really watered-down version of Death Race. It doesn't feel like there was that passion that Death Race 2000 had. I just, I love Death Race 2000, and this one just feels like the poor relations to that. Sir, the fact that you did not mention the leader of the Juicy Fruits, sir? Oh boy, not... Not only the leader of the Juicy Fruits, but also Beef himself. Beef himself. So oh yeah. Good. Oh future. my god. Yeah. What a strange mix of Death Death Race 2000 and Cannonball Run or Gumball Rally, I guess. Like what a weird mix of the two. Like you said, Father Malone, I think it goes to show it doesn't really work if you do it both ways. Paul Bartell did not want to do this movie, felt that after doing Death Race, he was being pigeonholed as some sort of, you know, um, 
you know, car director. So he brought a lot of menace to the movie that was maybe not necessarily warranted. I'm speaking really at the end that that pile up. Like speaking of un- unexpected yeah. endings, oh God, it, and murderous intent. My God, like he really wanted all of those characters to die and all of us to uh, revel in their deaths. So yeah, it's it, it's a schizophrenic movie. I don't think it it isn't served in any way by David Carradine being the lead. Now listen, I love David Carradine, and I think he's great as Frankenstein, the unknowable, you're not supposed to like this guy who has some sort of hidden agenda. But like as a romantic lead in a film, he's maybe a bit of a cold fish, so that works against it. But like everything else is kind of working for it because it is Paul Bartel and it is this incredible stable of Corman regulars and luminaries and it is a mini Phantom of the Paradise reunion and the car stuff is fantastic. Like really all of these movies, the car stuff is so dangerous, but it feels feels really dangerous in Cannonball more so than in the other ones. How can you go wrong where a scene where Paul Bartel and Martin Scorsese and Sylvester Stallone are eating fried chicken together? I also love how Father Malone loves making uh, unintentional puns. Dead fish talking about David Carradine's koi. Come on. David Carradine, I have not seen him in enough things. Other, I mean, I've seen him in Kill Bill, but I haven't seen Kill Bill in, you know, since it came out. Yeah, I agree, Father Malone. He's not, oh man, this movie, uh, Robert Carradine is really good in this movie. And that's the problem with this movie is Robert Carradine is so good that you're like, can we get the other Carradine for a while? Because like you're really bumming me out, David Carradine, like you're too serious because this movie is fun in moments. But yeah, it's also tonally inconsistent in a way that I was not expecting. Well, the way that it starts with this dream sequence of him driving this car, the guy behind him asking him all these pointed questions, Veronica Hamill in the passenger seat with a blindfold on, and they end up killing her. And it's just this whole thing of like, oh, you're going to kill her like you killed this other woman. And then when you find out that he actually didn't kill this other woman, that it was actually Archie Han who was drunk and murdered this person and you're like he took the fall for it so why is he feeling guilty about this this is wrong that he feels guilty all the while archie han is laughing about it because it's hilarious to drunk drive and kill someone isn't it he's like oh yeah he took the fall for me that's <laughs> like what this the movie fuck is are way too heavy for its own good i mean you know, and what you just said, Chris, about having Robert Carradine in it, like, they, they obviously went with, let's go with the, you know, grizzled old timer who's got a chan- last chance at redemption when they sure, surely should have gone with the up and coming youngster and had Robert Carradine step in the role because if him, like, ri- racing for this young love, like, story, I would have been all about it. Like, it, it would have been a definite rival for Gumball Rally. Instead, it's, like we said, just sort of, eh, it doesn't feel right well and it's even better at the end of the movie david carradine essentially goes hey bro fuck you and just lets his brother die <laughs> like what i again it's a tonally just like it's spastic it's like what do you want to do do you want to be this fun movie where garrett graham is playing the guitar like an asshole in this car while the guy who 
is forcing men to be raped by other men in deliverance chuckles along like or do you want to be a serious movie where like 30 people <laughs> explode at the end like i i had a hard time figuring this movie out i liked it but i had a really hard time figuring out what the movie's kind of interior logic was cuz i think it's almost completely devoid of it but Garrett graham the lighthearted moments in the movie keep it buoyant and in my mind, it's still a better movie than Cannonball Run. I don't think I will seek out Cannonball to watch again like I will Gumball Rally, but like if it's on, I'm going to watch it. It is fun. As insane as it is, like it's no less insane than any other thing that was coming out of Corman Studios in the 60s and 70s. So all of its faults don't ultimately tarnish it beyond recognition, particularly what with what's going to follow. And that scene where Paul Bartell is playing the piano and Dick Miller is getting the shit kicked out of him is the best scene in this movie. Period. Put a fucking pin in it, baby. Every time Bartell is playing the piano and singing his uh, uh, Cole Porter-esque type songs, I'm like, yes, I'm here for this. This is great. And when he answers questions with the lyrics from the songs, I'm like, yes, this is genius right here. Benny, come on in, sit down. You like Cole Porter? Yeah, sure. Listen to this, something I'm writing myself. Oh, how I'll cry when you go. Then I'll be missing you so. That's all I got. Uh, what do you think? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, that's nice, yeah. So, uh, what do you say, Lester? You cover me for the 50,000? Oh, how I hate to say no. That scene where Dick Miller is having his ass beat and Paul Bartel's playing the song about how he's having his ass beat is just inspired. Before we leave this, so many great faces, so many good times to just see. Like, I mean, Carl Gottlieb showing up and him and um, uh, Machine Gun Joe's squeezed along for the ride as well. I love all that stuff. There's so many great just appearances by characters and in, in, you know, even Corman himself, where we're going to be talking about how he's leading the FBI or CIA here pretty soon. So, and they, uh, and they have another crazy uh, European in this movie who gets blown up pretty unceremoniously quickly in. So I felt so dumb because I'm just like, how did he blow up? And then it took me a while to be like, Oh yeah, you idiot. Those people were putting stuff under his car at the very beginning, but I had no idea whose car they were putting it under. I didn't know who these guys were. I'm just like, what am I missing? There's a lot of like weird lines that aren't drawn in this movie. That's Paul Bartel leaving breadcrumbs, just so you'll go back and rewatch and, and understand what the actual plan was. <laughs> And it was nice, too, Joe McBride, who's been on the show several times. He's in here as a reporter at the very end, so it's interesting. Mike, before we started recording, I mentioned that I had been familiar with Gumball Rally, like, as a kid, and Cannonball Run ad nauseum on cable, like, when we were growing up. But one night, Cannonball came on, and I thought, oh, this is, it's Gumball Rally, and I'm watching, until I saw Carl Gottlieb, and I went, I don't think the screenwriter of Jaws is in the gumball rally. What the fuck am I watching? (laughs) 
I just want that outfit that Garrett Graham is wearing. It's pretty spectacular, isn't it? As Perman Walters. What a great name. What a just a goofy ass role. That is that should have been in Gumball Rally. Like that character is better suited in that movie. Like 100%. Oh, yeah, he's like the troubadour and this whole thing of him trying to get fame and doing radio. And that's a nice thread too, the fact that they're in the car and that the thing is playing on the radio is a little bit of vanishing point, but like a little better in a way. And I love that it's the neck of his guitar that ultimately undoes that guy and just fucks him over at the end. I'm like, yes, thank you. That is this movie's speed moment, because that is like right out of speed. Like that, that this, it's the whole, it's that whole premise at the right with the jumping, right? Because it's like, oh, I can't make the jump in speed. They don't have a choice. I guess he doesn't have a choice in this movie, though. You could convince me he could have just driven past him, like, and kind of ducked down. But you know, it's much more exciting to watch him fly off the bridge. And I like that shot of David Carradine where it's kind of in his lap, and you see him go off the bridge, and he's just kind of like, huh. Whatever. You can see him like his character just being like, well, if I die, I die. And then it clears the thing and you hear that ting. And I was like, man, that's that's Paul Bartel has an eye for this stuff. Even if he didn't want to do it again, he still had an eye for it. So are we to believe that David Carradine's character was in a way psychic because he dreamed the ending of this movie? He just dreamed it in a different order. And that's the way psychics operate. You don't understand exactly what you've been given. You're just given the clues. That's unexplained. I didn't understand that, the opening bit at all. This is the story of an average guy and a beautiful girl. Hi. Don't tell me your name. I'll just call you Beauty. You must be a sensitive person. I bet you're a fan of Rod McEwens. I try to be. And his best friend. I am Captain Chaos. Been a cop long. And a family doctor. Come on right here. And how they all set out one day in an ambulance from New York to California at 150 miles per hour. California, here we come. But they aren't the only ones. Because this is the Cannonball Run. America's illegal Grand Prix. And it doesn't matter how you get there. It's who gets there first. Burt Reynolds is the defending champion. On his team, Farrah Fawcett. Are you one of those volleyballers? Cannonballers. Don DeLuise. And Jack Elam. And here comes the competition. Hurry up, you little... Dean Martin. We happen to be in a race. Sammy Davis Jr. You, shorty. Where'd you get all that jewelry? Take a layup. Layup. Mel Tillis and Terry Bradshaw. Jackie Chan. And Roger Moore as himself. I'm Roger Moore. Roger Moore. All of them. Reckless. We're in kind of a hurry, so if you could just bless it a little bit. Unscrupulous. Oh, I gotta bless her. I'm sorry, Father. She's a Zen Buddhist. Desperate characters. By land, by sea, by air, they'll do anything, drive anything, say anything. It's hard to understand you. When I called you, I was doing 140 miles an hour. And stop at nothing. Normally I drive right around the speed limit. 
We all make mistakes, miss. 160 to win the Cannonball Run. Yeah, we're looking good. Come on, faster! Cannonball Run. The only movie to get over 200 tickets before it even opens. Cannibal Run, interestingly enough, written by the guy, Brock Yates, who actually was part of the inspiration of the actual Cannonball race, which, yeah, he is Cannonball. He's the guy who did this, so he's the guy who ends up penning this film. This is a movie, this is another pairing of Hal Needham, former stuntman Hal Needham, who ended up becoming a director and mostly is known for, in in my mind anyway, uh, the Smokey and the Bandit series, also Stroker Ace, also one of the best movies ever made in the entire world, Megaforce. Uh, I know a lot of people love Body Slam. I still haven't seen that one. Rad, he did as well. Death Car on the Freeway. If people have not seen Death Car on the Freeway, you have to see Death Car in the Freeway. It is so much fun, and it is a really interesting treatise on women in the workplace. But also the director of Hooper, which I fucking love too. But speaking of Cannibal Run, so this is another pairing of Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds. And basically, did you like Gumball Rally? Because we can do that again, but with a lot of bigger stars. There are some things now I will say, like you guys have been slagging on this movie this whole time. I fucking love this movie still, though. I will admit that I mixed this movie and Cannibal Run 2 up a lot. Like I kept waiting for Richard Keel to show up. I forgot that he's not in this. I think he's just in the second one. But man, say whatever you want. But if you guys talk bad about Jack Elam as the doctor, we're going to have to have words. Are you are you turning the show over to us for the next twenty minutes to shit talk the movies? That you're you I'm kidding. I was kind of I'm kind of surprised. I'm not though because from the sound of it, with both of y'all, this is something that was just like constantly being bombarded to you on TV anyway. So like, if you didn't like it, I would honestly kind of be shocked more than anything else. I think I might have seen this theatrically. This came out when I was. Nine years old, I know for sure I saw the second one theatrically, but I'm pretty sure because I remember this whole thing, which Needham, I think, took from Jackie Chan, or maybe he inspired Jackie Chan, this whole thing of the outtakes at the end, and the whole, these bleeds right here. Because if I had enough time, I would take those rosary bleeds and uh, stuff them up your nose. These bleeds? (laughs) Those bleeds, yeah. You gonna take these... I take these bleeds here. That's integral to me. That is my DNA. Is these bleeds? Yeah, that that's me. Well, you mentioned Jackie Chan on my show on the on the Culture Cast. We just talked about Mr. Majestic, which was part of this six movie deal that Golden Harvest did. Because Cannonball Run is one of these other movies that was included in that deal, which I have to assume is why Jackie Chan is in this movie. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's so unusual that he's here. It's so unusual that he's playing a Japanese, Japanese person. Yeah, which I understand he was uh, unaware of till he got to the set and then was was not in any way pleased that he was going to be playing a Japanese person. 
And there's no reason for him to be playing a Japanese person. I mean, the fact that every time their characters show up on screen, it goes, just clue, clue enough where we're going with any character who's not white. And then you've got Jamie Farr as Abdul Salim Falafel, which sounds like I'm being offensive, but I'm pretty sure that's actually the character's fucking name. That was my issue with this movie versus Gumball. Gumball, it's light caricature in this movie it's like hard stereotype like to a point where it's like this is not a stereotype it's offensive and there's no real history like there's this whole thing of like dean martin and sammy davis jr don't like jj mcclure and um uh, victor prism i believe is the dom deloise character they don't like burt reynolds and dom deloise and I don't know why that is, other than they're the favorites and Sammy Davis Jr. is going to – one of the first people that I remember being canceled, Jimmy the Greek, going to him for these odds and putting all this money on there. Otherwise, I don't know why they dislike each other and there's this whole thing of like they have this rivalry. But there's no backstory that I really know of of why this is the case. And I have to say – I never noticed until this time watching Cannonball Run just how drunk Dean Martin looks through this entire <laughs> oh film. What? That is the first thing I noticed. His eyes are visibly popping out of his head. He looks fucking trashed. I'm shocked that he managed to make it through filming without looking without looking worse than he does, which is really bad. He looks bloated. It's it's sad. It's honestly kind of sad. It is pretty sla- sad. Yeah. It, he looks like he is just lit throughout so much of this. And I'm I'm amazed that there aren't more outtakes of him flubbing lines because he just looked like he was three sheets to the wind. You know, guys, I watched this movie. Now, obviously, I've seen it one gazillion times. And I, I believe I saw it theatrically as well, Mike. But I watched it again two days ago with a friend of mine who's 30 years old and who had no idea who was on screen. And by the time they're um, officially getting in the car, she turned to me and said, this drunk old man is so creepy. What's going on? And (laughs) he's like, he's just a lech and like, he's not funny. And like, what, what, what is this? And I had to explain to her that we live in a city with a street named after that man. <laughs> and that and that was the whole purpose of his act, essentially. <laughs> like, that's the whole act. You know, I, that's I what did explain he, like, that. I'm like, you do the real that's like sixty years of that performance. Like that's what we expect from Dean Martin to be drunk. Just not that drunk and not that creepy. Howard Hawks handled it very well <laughs> in Rio Bravo. This <laughs> He didn't have to act too much in this no, movie to it's, it's play not, a drunk. Not as dead. Not sure he's acting at all. And poor Farrah Fawcett. What the hell's oh, going on with her and this like tree loving thing? She has nothing to to work with whatsoever. I know you still like it, Mike, but to me, it's like it, it, it feels like why you should never let like a, a, a an artist's estate dictate how a biopic is made because like. Like, we got two, like, really superior movies based on the guy who actually invented or created this race. And then when he gets to do his, it's the most light entertainment, but the kind of the dumbest and, like, the most sort of lazily racist and rapey. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it, it does have one of the better gags of the three movies, which is the Roger Moore character. 
That is interesting, yes, that he's actually a young Jewish boy that uh, has watched too many spy movies. I do love some of his spy uh, parody titles, the, uh, the Fly That Bugged Me. I really enjoyed that one. His whole scene with his mother, I liked a lot, but... Yeah, that was that was interesting. That confused the hell out of me as a kid because I'm just like, what? He, he's playing Roger Moore, but he's not Roger Moore, but he is Roger Moore. My little nine year old brain just exploded. I thought he was the guy who is using the name Roger Moore as an actor to play James Bond. That would have been more interesting. That's what I thought, and that would have been more interesting because then it's like, so James Bond played by Roger Moore is played by a guy who's not actually okay. That's what I thought, which that's why I was like, it was kind of an interesting convention. But then, yeah, they do the thing with the gun, just like uh, the Raul Julia character in Gumball. The exact same gag. 100% same fucking gag. There's even rapey bikers in this one, but the rapey biker happens to be uh, the one and only, well, Peter Fonda. And you've got Robert Tessier, who we just talked about uh, with uh, Hard Times. Robert Tessier is the big, bald, muscly dude. That's right. Yeah, oh, he's fantastic. I love that guy. What a face. Why, why don't you try this side? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, as you said, Mike, there are aspects of this movie that, like, are embedded in my consciousness. One of the funniest things to me to this day is when, in the final brawl in Cannonball Run, when Burt Reynolds takes out two guys with ease and goes, ah, oh, give me somebody. And then a guy flies in from out of frame and just wrecks him. Like, that's a great joke. Like, no matter what movie it is. Uh, uh, that And, you know, the... The confusion with Cannonball Run 2 is also with me because I kept waiting for an exchange between Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise where Burt Reynolds says, a man cannot eat by, you know, by bread alone. And Dom DeLuise says, oh, I could, especially a nice big rye, which to me is like one of the funniest things ever. And that's the other thing going for Cannonball Run that the other two movies lack, Dom DeLuise. If you put Dom DeLuise into anything, it's going to be better. Just the, his laugh is so infectious. Like, I don't think there's, I don't think really any, many of the jokes land in uh, Cannonball Run, if they're any good at all. But every time he makes a joke, I'm going to laugh because he's laughing. And I like recurring gag of uh, Adrian Barbeau, and I'm sorry, the other lady that are in the car. I can't get past Barbeau. She's just amazing. And I just love that whole thing of them constantly being pulled over. This movie, everybody gets pulled over all the time, which is kind of weird compared to the others where the cops, yeah, you got Roscoe trying to stop them. But in this, it's every single time they're getting pulled over at some point. These guys are bad. They're bad at their job. They are bad. But I do love this whole thing of her with the long cleavage and pulling out the driver's license. And then when it pays off of Valerie Perrine, it's like, yes, that is such a nice bow on that gag. Can't top that. She met her match in Valerie Perrine. Can we go back to Dom DeLuise for a moment? Because Father Malone, I'm shaking over here. I found him to – I didn't – what was funny about Dom DeLuise in this movie? I'm I'm genuinely asking you because that ca- – the Captain Chaos thing in this movie, it, every time I wanted to turn the movie off because I thought like I was under the impression that he was like a character that Dom DeLuise did in his act yeah. and it was something – yeah. And when I found out that it wasn't the case, yeah. I asked myself what the fuck was the point of giving it so much screen time and he because any time yeah. like almost immediately, immediately. Like, i thought it was a it's reveal it, it, later on but I it's like another personality 
it grinds the movie to a halt anytime he shows up because it's like, what what is funny about this? I don't get, I don't personally get what's funny about his character because it's just like he's. It's not funny. I, I don't think the Captain Chaos character is particularly funny. I think at, at the time people were going to laugh at that because here's a lunatic suddenly appearing in this movie. But I think Dom DeLuise just sort of conversationally and like as a character, like him getting out of that airplane and casually walking in do do do, and grabbing the beer and everything, just the, the sort of comedic jaunt to him. Like, I don't know. I think the guy is very, very funny and, you know. Obviously you don't, but I, I, I couldn't, I can't explain to you why I love that man so much, but I, I do. And I like Dom DeLuise in other things because he's in Mel Brooks's stuff and he's great in that. He's great in History of the World Part One. It's not a Dom DeLuise issue. It is an issue in this movie almost entirely. The way they write his character, the gag, the main gag, like we've mentioned, that is the singular punchline almost for his character. I had a hard time understanding why they gave it so much screen time because like there are funnier people in this movie that they like Burt Reynolds is pretty good in this movie. Unsurprisingly, he's Burt fucking Reynolds. <laughs> like unsurprisingly, he's good, but they give Burt Reynolds less screen time because they give Dom DeLuise more. And it's like, yikes. I just I'm sorry. It's just weird to me. I love the chemistry between the two. And no, the chemistry is good. It's just when it's that. Dom DeLuise's cut, Captain Chaos thing, I think just really, I don't know, sometimes I get hung up on roles in movies like in Fifth Element with Chris Tucker. It's like that for me. It's like I'm almost like you have it so throughout this movie that I'm just like, wow, we're committing. We're really committing here to this gag. Because the gag's the same over and over. The joke is the no, same. I, I agree with you. That joke to me doesn't work all that well. But I think all of the interpersonal stuff between him and Burt Reynolds, and I think Burt Reynolds, if he's funny ever on screen, it's always because Dom DeLuise is there elevating it. I mean, I absolutely love that initial outtake that they use at the end of the movie where Burt Reynolds has to slap Dom DeLuise to get him to stop laughing. No, 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 that- no. I can do it. I can do it. Like the whole movie is worth it just for that, really. Like to see the way that they were behind the camera. Should have been a two-hour blooper reel, obviously. Really? Yeah. Like, yeah. Going back to my favorite bit. Don't tell me that Jackie Lima isn't just the best part of this movie. Him with his finger and just. (laughs) He's pretty spectacular. Every time he comes, they you know they do that like organ grind every time he comes on screen. Like, oh, it's a monster. They don't need to. That face, and no, you know, obviously, I love Jack Elam and everything, but, like, he he's so good here. Like, he gets it. Like, that level of comedy. Like, uh, yeah, I love him in this. Mind you, an actor not known at all for his comedic stylings, known more for just being a Western actor. Yeah, and a, and a, and a villainous Western. Yeah, but a stroke of genius putting him in this movie. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and the reveal, his reveal too, his initial reveal, because I didn't even realize he was in this movie. When they reveal him the first time, I was like, Jesus Christ, like, fuck, like, all right, just out in front, huh? Like, good God. He already has the eye that looks like it's looking off somewhere, and I swear they told him to look someplace else with his other eye, because he looks. it looks like his eyes are looking in two different directions and not anywhere near any of the characters that he's talking to. What do you expect from a graduate of the Knoxville, Tennessee College of Faith Healing? Holy shit. I'm honored, sir. I'm Dr. Nicholas Nicholas Van Helsing, professor of proctology and other related tendencies. Graduate of the University of Rangoon. 
and assorted night classes at the Knoxville, Tennessee College of Faith Healing. You know what Cannonball Run has over the other two movies, though? Uh, for me, anyway, um, it lets the uh, female team win. And they, and they win, uh, uh, like, well. Like, there's no chicanery going on. Like, it's, she actually gets there. I mean, obviously, Captain Chaos is a problem. But, uh, but I, I like that they won. Basically, Captain Chaos is the yeah, Franco yeah, character. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because it's like, oh, someone's in trouble. I must save this baby. And it's like, but it's a cat. Oh, yuck, yuck, yuck. That isn't worth saving, right? It is worth saving. Yeah. Can uh, we talk about Jamie Farr for a second? Ba, 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 ba. Like, like, what, what, what? Th- yeah. He was so popular, he came back in the second and third movie. In the third movie, which I didn't realize. So I've seen Speed Zone before, but I didn't realize that he was in it. I forgot that he was. He was just so funny the last two times. I mean, making fun of Middle Easterners because, you know, of hundreds of years of history that we can just mine and make fun of is, is I'm a fan. Personally, I mean, he is Lebanese, he is so Lebanese. he comes by it honestly. So, <laughs> yes, right, exactly. all that buffoonery is is okay. <laughs> sure, <laughs> right. yeah, yep. yuck, 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 as they would say. Oh boy, yeah. I mean, this is 1981 when this comes out, so we are just. I, I mean, I think the oil crisis might still have been going on, not as bad as it was, but but still, it was fresh in everyone's mind. Oh what, what boy, Arabs yes. are like right. It's really funny when he meets female character and he's like, would you like to join my harem? It's like, wow, movie, could you not have something offensive come out of this character's mouth? Or just like poorly, like just lazy. It's more, frankly, again, I don't want to be the woke millennial asshole that pisses off all of Mike's listeners, but it's not that it's offensive. It's that it's fucking lazy. It's lazy, And that's offensive. the problem. It's, it, it lazy yeah, racist. which is the worst kind of offensive, Absolutely. frankly. Like- Everyone will get this joke, right? And everyone will like it. No, we don't like those jokes. Stop doing those. We don't need to hear the ricky-ticky music every time the Japanese characters who aren't even Japanese come on screen. But they have all the gadgets because they're Japanese. Yeah. They have night vision goggles because they're Japanese. I still don't get why Jackie's watching behind the green door at what some the point. Hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> miles an hour in the middle of the night watching beyond the green door why are you watching porn and you're not even spanking it jackie you know what they say when you gotta go you gotta go i mean it's just i mean at least jackie gets a chance to fight but the fight choreography in here is not what it should be it is how needham needs to keep the choreography in the cars not out because anytime they step out of the cars it's like fuck Get them back in the cars. Like, maybe don't have them take uh, a fucking a detour to John Fiedler or whatever the hell goes. I mean, it's like, keep it in the cars. Because when they're in the cars, it is it is mildly entertaining. And there's some good gags in it. And I love Burt Convy. Who doesn't want to see him drive a dirt bike out of an airplane singing I've Gotta Be Me? Convy is an interesting one. Because it's just like, where's this guy coming from? Kind of like the Terry Bradshaw and Mel Tillis pairing where I'm just like... Are you guys in this movie? Are you not? I heard that those characters are so popular that uh, Needham tried to spin them off into their own thing, but I've not been able to find any clips from that. The Hobson um, Shaw called? of the <laughs> of the Cannonball franchise. They're attempting to do the characters from Gumball, but they're in it for like two scenes. 
So it's like it it is essentially what we would call now an extended cameo for Terry Bradshaw because, you know, big sports guy at the time. That's the thing that this movie does the worst of the three is actually making you feel like these people are racing one another. And this is like I don't really think there's much interaction or camaraderie or it really interaction between any of them. No, because they were all going to do that off screen. You know that these are all buddies and they were just having a great time filming wherever the hell they were filming. And they figured, well, these are such personalities. We don't really have to write anything more. It's just, it's, that's Terry Bradshaw driving that car. And that's Dom DeLuise next to Burt Reynolds, you know? And like, oh, and look, there's George Firth. Yeah, and the crazy thing, like I said at the top here, is that, you know, it was written by the guy who created the race and probably has an, a bunch of amazing stories. Like, the the fact that Burt Reynolds and uh, Dom DeLuise drive a, an ambulance is because the director and the writer did that, like, two years prior. And almost got, like, what? Like, the, it broke down outside Palm Springs. Like, they could have won in that ambulance. So, like... Knowing what I know and comparing it to the other two, like this one should have been so much better, but obviously just ended up being a fuck around like a party for the the cast and crew. Pretty much this is one of those. These guys probably had a lot of fun making this probably more fun than we had watching it. I think it's really I will be completely honest. It is definitely the nostalgia factor for me because i think if i saw this right now brand new i'd be like what the fuck is happening with this movie this is not good but having seen it so young so many times having these lines be part of your vocabulary i can really see why i like this I understand your nostalgia for it, because if I had seen this a million times on TV growing up, I would probably feel the same way. And there are parts of it that are fun, but man, like Burt Reynolds is a lot better in Smokey and the Bandit. I mean, that uh, for a Hal Needham movie that I've seen with him in it, like I would rather just watch that again. I mean, Needham, say what you will, but he did direct some solid stuff. Like I said, Hooper, I really like. Death Car in the Freeway is indeed very good. Smokey and the Bandit's great. The parts of this movie that I remembered fondly, I continued to enjoy when I was watching it again. And then the parts that I don't think I, I realized how much I disliked until recently we were watching it. So uh, I'll continue to remember those fond moments. And if I'm going to rewatch a car movie, it's going to be Gumball Rally. So let's go ahead. We're going to take another break and play a trailer for next week's show. Observe this man closely. His eyes have seen violence. His nose has breathed corruption. His mouth has whispered both love and betrayal. Paramount Pictures presents The Conformist, a film directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. A study in the seduction of the soul. The rape of the mind. The art of political assassination. The Conformist, acclaimed at the Berlin Film Festival. Conformist, filmed in the palaces of power, in the streets and secret cells of revolution. The Conformist, 
hailed at the New York Film Festival. Starring Jean-Louis Trintignant, surpassing even his roles in Z, and a man and a woman. The Conformist, a film that lashes out at a world gone mad. And all at once, the camera becomes an instrument of passion. A weapon of destruction. A time bomb of truth for this day and age. That's right, we're toning things down a little bit next week with a look at Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Father Malone. So, Chris, what is going on with you, sir? Over at the CultureCast right now, my movie podcast, we are talking about Rutger Hauer films that aren't Blade Runner. Yes, there are other films. I know. <laughs> yeah, shocked face. Uh, so, we're talking about Blind Fury, uh, the Hitcher, which I guess is probably, if it's not Blade Runner, it's The Hitcher. So we're talking about stuff like that. And uh, yeah, Father Malone's rubbing his hands together because he is on one of those episodes. I'm on The Hitcher, baby. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You got your French fries ready? Oh, yes, I do. Love it. So, so yeah, so uh, culturecast.com, uh, c-stachiw.com, That's my link tree for the stuff I work on. And Father Malone, how about yourself, sir? If you want to see any of my stuff or hear any of it, go over to fathermalone.com. You're going to find my podcast, a video podcast I do called Wolf and Raisin the Banachek Podcast. I do with my partner, HP. Uh, there's also links to Dark Destinations and a whole bunch of uh, shows where we talk about old television shows. Fathermalone.com. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear me, I'm sorry. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, you can check out some other podcasts that I work on with these guys. These guys that are on this show, you can hear me talk about Columbo on the Shabby Detective. We've got Dreams for Sale, which is wrapping up pretty soon. There's another podcast. I think it's about uh, the Night Gallery. Is that right? That that's co- it's coming called out. Midnight there. Viewing, sir. Midnight Viewing. Yeah. It's out there. You can hear Chris and I talk about the life and times of Captain Barney Miller. We also talk about Rankin on Bass. They are available where all finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Come on. 